if you have your Bibles, would you take them and uh, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. I had a pleasure um, this week of uh, not just speaking to the kids, but playing games with them. I um, uh, started out with me just actually, I just wanted to do the recreation with the kids, and uh, we had a our guest pastor that was going to be coming, uh, he had a big foul up and uh, had an emergency that he had to take care of that he uh, uh, knew that was going to need his attention. And he called me a few weeks prior and said, I can't be there, unfortunately. And I said, okay, we, I, can, I can do the wreck and do the Bible all at the same time. And so we played some games. And I had uh, one of the games that we played was to teach our kids the books of the Bible. And uh, they're not here with you, but uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have them come up and, and uh, share with you, much like we heard from some of the students a couple of days ago. And uh, I can't wait to share, uh, for them to share with you the stories of what they experienced in camp. It's, it's going to be awesome. So I want you to be prepared. I think Sunday night, July 26th, when we begin our first prayer meeting service, we're going to begin uh, the, the beginning portion at a time. We'll have the kids come up and share with, uh, share with you all that they experienced. Speaking of sharing, I got, you know, there was a video, a beautiful video that went with the song. When the choir did great, man, I love that song. And, and uh, the pictures there just went right along with the message. I've got a picture that I'm going to bring you, but it's not nearly like what we just saw. Uh, I'm going to have Janet, can you uh, put that picture up? Yeah, there we go. All right. Now, I, I, I found this picture this week. Now, is it me or are those little wheels turning? Does it look like they're turning? Are they turning? They, they look like they're turning to me. And I read about this picture and said, if you look at it, those wheels look like they're turning. But if you look at the center of, this, of, of any one of them circles where the little black dot is, if you look at that black dot, it'll stop turning. Is that working for anybody? Okay. It, see, the, the whole point of this, it, it was supposed to be deceptive to our eyes. In other words... What our eyes really see sometimes really isn't what's going on. You know, every single Sunday morning, we show up and we look into the eyes of everybody here. You look into my eyes and I look into yours. You can tell me one thing and we can tell each other one thing and our eyes may not pick up what's going on on the inside though, right? May not pick up the frustration, the hurt, the anger, jealousy, the whatever. In the scriptures, John chapter 20, Jesus kind of scolded one of his, uh, one of his disciples, Thomas. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. What about those who haven't seen me, but yet they've still believed? Sometimes our eyes just, they don't do us justice. Sometimes seeing is not believing. Jesus said also, uh, or rather the message rendering that same verse said, so you believe because you've seen with your own eyes, even better blessings are in store for those who believe without even seeing. So my question is, kind of related to our text this morning and the study of the Ten Commandments, what do you have to see in order to worship? What do your eyes have to be fixed on for, for your heart and your mind to be fixed on Christ? Well, did you know that's been a problem for a long, long time? Even the people of Israel 
were they didn't really quite get the fact that God being invisible in a way can still be worshiped. But sometimes our eyes deceive us and we don't think that we can worship something that's invisible and we've got to construct something to affix our attention on. It's called idolatry. And this leads us to my sermon on the second command found in Exodus chapter 20 in verses 4 through 6. Would you stand together with me? This command is kind of long. It's a few verses long and we're going to kind of unpack it today. And I believe by the time we're out of here uh, later on, uh, I believe you're really going to see God in a different way. You say, what do you mean see him? I thought you just said he's invisible, pastor. I know. Sometimes we believe with more than what we can see. And we believe with our hearts. So let's look at this verse together. Follow along with me. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, this day will mark a, a special day for all of us. But God, maybe especially for that one who's here and they're here and, and they're lost. Spiritually speaking, God, they're lost. They have, they have not trusted in you through Jesus Christ. They've never made him your Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that today that they would find salvation. Father, I also pray for the other folks who may be lost, maybe not necessarily spiritually, but they're lost mentally. They're lost emotionally. They may be lost financially. I mean, they've got some serious things going on in their life, God, and and, and maybe if if they were to talk to you, they, they would probably recognize that there's an image in their life that they've been worshiping. They, there's something that they have constructed. And that's what they've been bowing down to. God, I believe all of us here, we've got a problem with idolatry. We'll put some things up in our life and in our minds. We'll construct some things and, and we'll give it more attention than what we give to you. That's idolatry. We'll trust in something else other than you. That's idolatry. But God, you've got a prescription for it. And it's right here in our text. It's right here in the Word of God. Lord, may we connect with you in such a mighty way that, that we can put down the idols and put away those things that would bring us so much harm. They, they never fulfill us. But most importantly, it disrespects you and your intent and on, on your design and creation. Father, may you help us this day. Father, would you help me to articulate well what I've studied and what you've taught me. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we looked at commandment number one last week. That was basically a, a, a command that says... Um, I am opposed to foreign gods completely. You know, you shall have no other gods. Commandment number two is actually a worship commandment. Because if God is against other gods in, verse, in, in the first commandment, 
He says in commandment number two, I don't want you worshiping anything else other than me. So what do we do when we have these idols in our life and and we have these things going on in our hearts? What it is is self-willed worship. What we're doing is is we are empowering something that never should have that power. And it it doesn't have the power. But we're self-imposing our worship to something else. One writer said, the point of worshiping God without an image is this. If you can stand with your back to idols, then you must still learn to kneel properly before the God of Israel. You can get rid of all of your religious idols, but in their place, you must not erect an image of Yahweh. The first command points to the true God. The second command points to true worship. So we're starting to see that the Ten Commandments are not just so much ten individual little things that God gave us. It's going to be a package deal. One is going to relate to the other. And that's how I'm building this series. You're going to see how all these commandments kind of interlink together for our connection with God. Now, when we compare uh, our culture today with biblical culture, you know that, well, we don't really seem as idolatrous as like um, Athens. Okay, Athens in the book of Acts. You may have heard about this in Sunday school or, or a sermon. Paul walking through Athens in Acts chapter 17. And as he's walking through the city, he sees all of these idols, these statues. Now, now these were things that people actually worship. You can go to a place like Washington, D.C. You can go to any major city. And in the heart of that city, you'll see statues or whatever. But this is different. This was more than to commemorate something historical. This is what the people were worshiping. It was a representation of their worship. But right in the middle was a statue. You may remember. And there was an inscription at the bottom. Anybody remember what it said? To, to an unknown God. And you remember Paul in Athens, he said, and he reasoned with these people. He said, listen, the God that you say you don't know, I know, and I'm going to tell you about him. And this God that you don't know that I'm going to tell you about, he demands and requires all of your worship undivided. When we're in India on our mission trips and I'm training our teams to go, I talk about how we, how do we lead that native Indian to pray who's used to, in his following of Hinduism, to worship millions of gods. And one of the things that we explain to them is you turn your back on all of those gods and you turn to the one true God. But see, we don't have to have statues and we don't have to have physical images to have idols though, do we? I don't think we do. So really, our cultures are not all that different. But what I want to do for you right now is is through this sermon, I'm going to go ahead and start in this outline. I'm going to give you some key phrases here. I want to give you some things to think about which point to the meaning behind uh, that, that's intended that God had for us for the second commandment. The first thing is this. I want you to I want to make sure you understand this. Number one, my life was created to seek. Your life, my life, by our very nature, we look for stuff. It starts with, listen, guys, it starts with your, your girlfriends, your wives. You go to the mall. You go to the store shopping. Okay? Now, I make a list, typically. I go into the shopping mall. I'm looking for a hat. Okay, I know I'm looking for a hat, so I'm going to get a hat. I go in, 
there's a selection, I get my hat that I choose. Ladies, this, and by the way, this is not, you know, it's not derogatory, I'm just saying. You look for a hat. Okay, guys, there's another word for hat. It's called an accessory. What they're doing is they're accessorizing. Okay? So they go in and they look for not only a hat, but they have to accessorize. They have to get shoes with the dress. They have to get the purse to match their whatever, their belt or something. I don't know. We are, we are seekers. Okay? We do it with cars. We do it with our homes. I mean, we do it with everything. We, we are naturally seekers. The problem is we don't really know what we're looking for half the time, do we? Right? And then half the time we find it and then we're not satisfied with it. You know, in all of my years of ministry and life, and, and some of you live way longer than I have, and you could probably say the exact same thing. I have never met anyone who is completely and totally satisfied with their lives. It's all, there's always something else that they are wanting or seeking. How do we know that, that our lives are oriented to seek? Well, the Bible tells us that we are. Did you know that the very first words that Jesus ever gave to the disciples? It was a question about what do you seek? Remember Mark chapter 1, round about verse 29? He came up and he says, what are you looking for? I didn't realize, you know, he asked us that. We may say, oh, I don't know if I'm really looking for anything. Yes, we are. Because let me ask you this. Don't raise your hands. Are you 100% completely and utterly satisfied and happy with your life? Or right now, is there something missing that you wish you had? Right now. I guarantee you there's something we could all identify. If you've got a bill laying on your dining room table, I bet you're seeking out some way to pay it, Right? You got some trouble with a relationship or with part of your family or, or something. You're looking for a solution. Jesus pegged it with these disciples. What do you seek? We are naturally seekers. The people of Israel, they naturally were, were seeking. We learned in our psychology 101 in college that, that, that our, our bodies are just designed to preserve uh, you know, our health and, and everything. So, I mean, God wired us to seek. That's why he told us in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. He knows that we are our seekers. So even he told his disciples, he didn't even introduce himself. No, hi, I'm Jesus. Hi, what's your name? You know, what y'all doing today? No, what do you seek? Because it's an important question. And, if, and listen, if we don't understand that we are seekers, we'll continue to deceive ourselves in what we're worshiping. We have to realize that we are looking for something. You know what's funny? Have you ever walked into a room and, and forgotten why you walked in there? I, listen, and Janet, my poor secretary, she knows. I walk around here lost half the time anyway. I walk in and I don't know why I came into a certain room or I go into another office, portion of church. Why did I come in here? I got to think, okay, I came in here for this. All right, check this out. There's a guy, a scientist from Notre Dame named Gabriel Radvansky. He spent 20 years studying this phenomenon of why you can walk into a room and forget what you went in there for. Listen to this. He says, the underlying brain phenomenon responsible for this is what's known as an event boundary. Our brains compartmentalize events and tie them to the environment or the room in which something occurred. Spiritually speaking, guys, we have an event boundary. 
So just like we can walk into a room, that, that event boundary kind of separates us from what just happened in the preceding events. That, that's, he, he's saying according, uh, to, according to his studies, that's what's happening. When you walk into that room, you just forgot why you went in there. Spiritually speaking, we've got event boundaries, and it's called sin. That's why sin is the reason why when we seek, we mess it up and what we're really looking for. Because what we start looking for are the things that aren't really the right solution. Have you ever tried to fix something and you didn't have the right solution? Men, have you ever tried to fix something around the house and you didn't have the right tool? The other day I was changing oil uh, in one of our vehicles and I did not have the wrench that you needed to get the oil filter off. I'm like, man, and it was late in the day. The, the part stores, they were, you know, they were closed up for that. So what do I do? And I remember my dad, my dad was a diesel mechanic for like 40 years or something like that. He was a long, long time. And he taught me a few tricks. And I remembered, I went back to my brain palace. Ain't much there. But I went back and I thought, oh, he, he gave me an idea. And I was able to get the, the thing off and, you know, and, and everything's running good right now. The, the thing was, is, is because of sin, we compartmentalize. We forget. We create these boundaries in our life where we can forget God and we don't even seek after God. Romans chapter 3 says as much. No one is righteous. No, not even one. No one seeks God. We don't naturally seek after Him. That's why commandment number 2 is so important. If God says, listen... There is no other deity out in this world that compares to me. Then whatever you try to construct and worship, it's going to be an idol because what you're really looking for is me. You just hadn't found me yet. But I love that promise that Jeremiah gives to us. God says, if you seek me, you'll find me if you seek me with all of your heart. But what happens when our hearts are tainted with sin? That's why Christ came. To down the cross, to shed His blood, to offer us forgiveness of sins and to change the way that we're seeking and thinking. But let me dwell on, on, on this whole idea of seeking just a little bit longer. Let me give you point number two. The problem is what and how I seek. That's the problem. You see, if sin is disrupting our orientation to God, right... If we don't naturally have an orientation to go after God and the things of God, everything else is going to be wrong. Have you ever felt like everything you did, there been a time in your life you felt like everything you were doing or touching or part of it was going wrong, right? I mean, sometimes you have that run, we would call it bad luck, you just have a run of bad luck. Everything that's going on is like, man, what else can go wrong today? I've had those days. Right? You're out working in the yard, stuff breaks down, you've got to do this, and got to, nothing is working out right. Well, so too our orientation because of sin. It's, it's changed our orientation of how we're seeking God. So why is it then that we want to construct something? Why is it necessary that we want to erect this, this something or other to, to represent God or, or, or something to worship? Remember last week I talked about the fetishes. You remember me talking last week about the fetishes and, and how they practice the burning of fetishes to, to, uh, in, in, um, 
in Africa and West Africa I had a missionary friend of mine who was a mentor and he talked about the burning of the fetishes. It's where they just declared they're getting rid of all of their gods, all of their idols. Let's just pretend again, this music stand is, is going to be our idol. Why do we have to have something to, to, to fixate our, our focus and, and this is our deity? Why is it? Well, let me give you an illustration. Let's consider electricity. You know, electricity uh, is, is really uncontrollable. Or it's uncontrolled. In its pure form, it's uncontrolled. Think about it. Lightning. Lightning is electricity in its purest form. Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. Remember? Right? We learned that in history class. Did you know he had a, he had a, 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 a special piece of equipment he was going to build to generate electricity? He needed money. He went to the local bank. I don't know if you knew about this in history class. He went to the local bank, and uh, they weren't used to lending during that time. And he told them about his idea. They thought it was wacko. They said, man, you just go fly a kite. That's what he did. So Benjamin Franklin, he discovered electricity. He flew the kite, right? It was, it was that bolt of lightning. Now that's... It's, it's uncontrolled. You can't control it. That's why when you hear about people getting hit by a bolt of lightning, they don't just stick it in their pocket and keep walking on. Right? They have to go to the hospital. I mean, they're hurt. Sometimes they're killed. So what do we do? When it comes to electricity, we've got transformers, capacitors, resistors. We have to put together a series of circuitry just to handle the powerfulness of electricity. Same thing with idolatry. God already told us in command number one, listen, there is no other God beside me. And what we do is we, we like to say, well, we've got to be in control. And so I'm going to erect and construct what I need to erect and construct so I can be in control. And that, my friend, is at the heart of proper worship to God. We have to say we're not in control. We have to be willing to say it's not what I can do, but God, it's what you can do through me. That's why Paul said in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who gives me what? Strength. Our, our power is not in an idol. Our power is not in some image. Our power is not in money. Our power is not in our possessions. Our power is not in our positions. Our power is in nothing that we can physically construct. Because let me tell you something. God, God is way more powerful. He's bigger than anything that we can try to put him in. He doesn't fit in any single box. And we think we can worship and control him. God says, you're not going to have any images. You can't. But this command right here, and I think I may have told you this in our introduction these Ten Commandments have some negativity to them, yes, but there's also something positive about them. Commandment number two is one of the most positive commands that's ever been. I'm going to give you point number three, and you'll see why. Why no other image? Because God created us to represent His image and presence in our lives. You just have these uh-huh moments. God, it so makes sense. Uh-huh, I get it now. If the people of Israel had been paying attention, they would have understood it. As soon as you read these, this verse, you shall have what? No, not make for yourself no image. 
Don't make a likeness of the thing. And, and here's what got me. What do you mean, God? I can't make an image of things that is uh, in, in heaven above, earth, in the water. What do you mean? <laughs> All we've got to do is go to Genesis 2. That's all we've got to do. When God, after having created everything in this world, He wasn't finished. And He says, Let us go down and make man in our image. So you think about every little construct that you've ever made. Listen, not only are you constructing something that can't handle the glory and the presence and the majesty and the mightiness of God, but you are just demeaning yourself by forgetting that you were created in the image of an almighty God. So why have anything else? Why have anything else? When God has says, listen, I have created you. In in the Old Testament, I mean, that whole creation thing, that whole motif is going on. When we get to the New Testament, he expands it even further through his son, Jesus. He says, by you being together as the bride of Christ, the church, you are now the body of Christ. You don't need another image. There is nothing in this world that can compare with what I have created you already to be. So what does he say about this whole generational thing? He says, you know, God's a a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Well, come on, let me explain this really quick. It's quite simple. It really is. What God is saying, and I'm going to read uh, from a a commentator, theologian by the name of Doug Stewart. He had a really great wording. I'm going to read you what what he said about this. This oft-repeated theme speaks of God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins that they learned from their parents. In other words... Uh, in other words, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they are doing to break my covenant because after all, they merely learned it from their parents who did it too. Instead, God will indeed punish generation after generation if they keep doing the same sorts of sins that prior generations did. So in other words, what the Scriptures is telling us here is that my iniquity, it will visit subsequent generations if they're going to keep doing what you are doing already. That's all that that passage is talking about there. In other words, he's not taking your sin and my sin and applying it to another generation. Listen, there's enough sin to be held in other generations to, to contend with that God has to deal with. It's like for, for my son and, and my daughter, they sin enough on their own without any help from me. God said, I, I don't want you to have this image. Why is it so evil? Well, as I've already mentioned, we're trying to transfer what God has given to us and we want to give it, give it to something that, that just can't handle it. Money can't handle it. I mean, y'all have been through enough recessions in this country. Money can't solve anything. 
It's like, it's like asking a child to get behind the wheel of a car and head out on an interstate highway. They, they, it's not, it doesn't work that way. They, they won't handle it. It's like asking a person who's scared of heights to climb a real tall ladder. You're assigning something to a person that just can't handle it. So what do we do? Well, first thing is we have to identify whether or not we're guilty of this. What are you guilty of bending your knee towards and worshiping? What are you guilty of bowing down to? What are, listen to me. What are you guilty? What are you guilty in allowing something to have dominant power in your life that was never designed to have that power? You've got to identify your idols. Another question is, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? What are you trying to find to make you so happy and satisfied that you are not yet finding in Jesus? I want you to take your Bibles and uh, I want you to turn with me to one of the most uh, telling stories in all of Scripture. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Um, it, it kind of goes towards this, this point here about having idols and how easy it is to get them into our lives and what do we do with them. Chapter 33 of Second Chronicles is an interesting story of two men. One is, the, is a guy by the name of Manasseh. He was a king. And then his son... Ammon, who came after him. Now, long story short, Manasseh was an evil dude. He was bad. He had his idols. He worshipped other gods. He, did, he had no regard for the, for, the, for the God of Israel. So listen to what happens to him in Second Chronicles 33, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You know what happened to his idol worship? It became the chains that bound him. It formed the walls and the bars of his own prison. Brought, brought forth by who? By Syria. Look at verse 14. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon, in the valley, and for the entrance to the fish gate, and, and carried, around to, uh, carried it around Ophel, and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the, of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He deconstructed everything that he was worshiping and cast it out of his sight. He got rid of it. He also restored the altar of the Lord. And offered on it sacrifices of peace offering and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. 
Let's just stop right here. So we can see this, this, this journey of his life. Assyria captured He was not following the Lord. Assyria captured him. He cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard his pleas. And then he dedicated his life and worship to God. Got rid of all the stuff. All the junk, all the idols, all the places of worship, all the altars, all the things that he was kneeling himself to. Cast them outside the city. Manasseh dies. His son becomes the next king. Watch this, verse 21. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made. You know what happened? Ammon walking outside the city one day. Just taking it easy, enjoying a stroll. And you see these pieces of wood and stone. They look like they were something. What is this? And he remembers, oh, those were the things that my dad had in the city and we were all worshiping. I remember these. Well, dad's not here. I better go ahead and put them back where they belong. One of the things we must remember, church, is that our worship and the things that we seek and the images and the altars that we try to construct and worship they will be seen by other people. They are our testimony. People, listen, people will know right quickly who you worship. They will know who your Lord is. They'll know who your God is. You don't have to tell them. He didn't have to tell Ammon. Ammon knew who they belonged to. They knew that those, he knew that those idols and those images belonged to his daddy. So I'm telling you right now, Make sure you know who you're seeking. Make sure you've deconstructed all of those idols and all those altars and all those places because people are watching you. They're observing your testimony. They're watching what you do. They're watching what I do. I've heard several times in my house, my wife calling down my children one particular instance, my son had done something that, well, he shouldn't have. Wasn't anything major, but just shouldn't have done it. Mama got on to him. My son replied, well, Dad did it. Threw me right under that bus, 70 miles an hour. Boom. It reminded me. It was a minor thing, but people watch. People will watch you more than they'll even listen to you sometimes. You know that. I'm halfway convinced people care less about the praise of God on your lips when everything that they see seems to contradict what you're doing on a Sunday morning. And I, I'm not necessarily talking about the unsaved, the world, the lost. 
we are watching one another too. Can I tell you that my testimony before you is one, one of the factors that helps me to overcome temptation and sin. Because I know I need to be accountable to you. I wish I could say it's 100% of the time. I wish I could say I'm sin-free and temptation-free, but none of us here are perfect. What has got your attention this morning? What have you been bowing down to over the past several years? Because I don't think you just wake up one morning and there it is. Matter of fact, I believe for some of us, your idol, that thing that you're worshiping, that thing that you've constructed, and it may be an ideology, it may be an emotion. Sometimes people can worship emotions. They just love to be upset and ill and critical at other people for some reason. Uh, Or they could be angry at, at just the world. It may be in your life and have been in your life for a very, very long time. And maybe now you're realizing, oh my, I, I've, I've worshipped. I have, I have sacrificed relationships, my time with God. I have sacrificed some very important things in my life on the altar of my own dignity. Or security. Or peace. Or happiness. God says, I I am your Lord. And I created you to be in my image. In other words, I created you so that you can deal directly with me. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, you know, God God will shoot you down with lightning, right? He'll strike you down, you know, with lightning. No, he won't. I just told you, lightning bolts, we can't handle God created us so that we could have a blessed relationship with Him. And it begins through Jesus. Matter of fact, it begins and it ends with Jesus. When He hung on the cross, He said it was finished. All of your altars, all the idols this morning, not in the literal sense, but you can bring them to this altar at the foot of a cross and say, Lord, here they are. I am in your image. You've designed me to, to, to follow you, to worship you. Here I am. There's no other images, God. It's just me and you. I can promise you. I can promise you as I'm standing here. You will never experience the joy and fulfillment and the completeness of your life until you let go of all of those other images. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it is so easy, God. It is so easy, Lord, to to not seek you, to put other things in your place, to to erect something in our life that we want to gravitate around and, and worship and just kind of hang our satisfaction on and hang our peace on. Father, that goes directly against the very reason why you created us. And Father, I pray for all the souls here. I pray for every individual here who's been struggling in that area. 
Maybe they know someone who's struggling and they're trying to help them, Lord. I, whatever the situation that may be, God, we all need to realize that the absolute, ultimate, best solution begins with Jesus. And so, Father, this morning, wherever folks are in their journey with you, wherever, they're, wherever they are on this spectrum of, of these images and altars and idols, God, there is no shame whatsoever in coming to this altar, to responding to this message, to the Word of God, and taking care of business. There's no shame in that whatsoever. Matter of fact, it's complete honor. It is complete honor to lay all of those things down and to make you first in our lives. Father, may be willing, may, may we be honest with ourselves and be willing to do what's needed. Father, I pray your blessings upon this time of response. May your will be done. In Jesus' name, let's